Good morning, let me add my welcome. My name is Paul Rees and I serve as the lead pastor here at Charlotte Chapel. Uh, on Wednesday night we considered some uh, sobering facts that Christianity is in rapid decline in the UK and the demographics say that's going to continue over the next 20 years. An unpublished Tear Fund report says that there are basically 2% evangelical Christians in Scotland. And the growth rate of the evangelical church in the UK is 0%. That is to say that we are seeing people getting saved and uh, getting discipled, but the numbers are just keeping up with the population uh, growth numbers. So that's the challenge that we face. And Charlotte Chapel itself, uh, over the last 14 years, when I checked the stats, we've been in decline. The membership has dropped in the last 14 years. And uh, if the trend is to continue in 2020, we will be a church of about 300 members. Uh, and so you can read more about that in the, uh, the handout, or there'll be an email going out of what we shared. But the reason for sharing that is that uh, we believe that God wants us to, uh, to do more than just decline. And we want to have a vision, really, of doubling in size by 2020. And the challenge of the first step we'll encourage all members to prayerfully consider and engage with is that every member, if every, everyone reads the word one-to-one with one non-Christian by the end of the year, and each of those become Christians, then we'll have grown from 500 to 1,000 in one year. So just to, in a sense, before we get overwhelmed by the stats, there's a simple step we can all take. Everyone reading the word one-to-one with one non-Christian before the end of the year. And I want to encourage every member, every person here really, to pray for that opportunity and look to God to provide that opportunity uh, in the remaining, what, how many months? Start of June, about six months to go. It seems doable to me. If we'll pray, let's pray now, shall we? Oh, great God, we worship you. We delight to meet together, to have your word read to us, to uh, hear each other sing. Lord, as we respond to all your goodness to us in Christ, we, we thank you that we can say that you are our shepherd that we can wholly lean and depend upon you. Lord, we, we've uttered these words that we will trust in you. Father, help us that we would actually do that as a church. Lord, in our individual lives, in this week ahead. Oh, Father, we pray for your great name and renown. Would you double our size? And Lord, we ask that you would turn the tide, that your church in this country of Scotland, in this nation would grow again, that people would know that you alone are God. Father, would you meet with us now and open our hearts to hear and respond to your word. In Christ's precious name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 37. Let's read the next chapter. You'll find that on page 720. In the church Bible, 720, if you don't have a Bible with you, hopefully a red book around you, page 720 will take you to Isaiah chapter 37. 
When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They told him, this is what Hezekiah says, this day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. As when children come to the point of birth and there is no strength to deliver them, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore pray for the remnant that still survives. When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says. Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, I'm going to put a spirit in him, so that when he hears a certain report, he will return to his own country, and there I'll have him cut down with the sword. When the field commander heard that the king of Assyria had left Lachish and withdrew and found the king fighting against Libna. Now Sennacherib received a report that Tiraka, the Cushite king of Egypt, was marching out to fight against him. When he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah with the word, with this word. Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my forefathers deliver them? The gods of Gozan, Haran, Rezef, and the peoples of Eden who were in Tel Hazar? Where is the king of Hamath? the king of Arped, the king of the city of Seravaim, or of Hena, or Eva. Hezekiah received the letter from the messenger and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heavens and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken against him. The virgin daughter of Zion despises and mocks you. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. 
Who is it you have insulted and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have heaped insults on the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I've ascended the heights of the mountains, the utmost heights of Lebanon. I've cut down its tallest cedars, the choicest of its pines. I've reached its remotest heights and finest of its forests. I've dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there. With the soles of my feet, I've dried up all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago, I ordained it. In days of old, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stones. Their people drained of power are dismayed and put to shame. They're like plants in the field, like tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows up. But I know where you stay and when you come and go and how you rage against me. Because you rage against me and because of your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. And I'll make you return by the way you came. This will be the sign for you, O Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself and the second year what springs from that. But in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Once more, a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he'll return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend the city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. We'll leave the final bit for the end. This is God's word. Now, if you've been coming on to Charlotte Chapel for a while, you know that I'm a big fan of a certain place in London called the British Museum. If you've not been there yet, you need to check it out. And there was a time when uh, the Bible was mocked because people couldn't find much evidence to back up some of the historical claims of the Bible. And yet the more archaeology has taken place in Egypt and the Middle East, it's unearthed more and more fascinating uh, corroborating evidence. And um, for instance, there was a time when scholars mocked the Bible for mentioning Sargon as king of uh, as king in Isaiah. Did you have my PowerPoint back there? Oh, I did email it. See if we can pull it up. Well, they mocked that there was such a thing as a king of Sargon. Uh, but after more digging around, uh, you can actually go to the British Museum and you can find a portrait of Sargon standing right next to his son who succeeded him, um, Sennacherib, mentioned in this text. And... Uh, Maybe we'll get to see a picture of him, maybe not. Anyway, it was Sargon who conquered the north uh, territory of Israel and his son Sennacherib who then demolished Philistine cities and turned his attention towards the country of Judah and its capital Jerusalem. 
And at the British Museum, not only can you see a portrait of Sargon and Sennacherib, but you can also see something called the Taylor Prism that was taken from Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. And it's a monument to the uh, victories of King Sennacherib and his many conquests. And they've translated it, and it begins with these modest and understated claims about Sennacherib. Sennacherib, the great king, the powerful king, the king of Assyria, the unrivaled, the pious monarch, the worshipper of the great gods, the protector of the just, the lover of the righteous, the noble warrior, the valiant, the valiant hero, the first of all the kings, the great punisher of unbelievers, and it goes on and on and on and on. Uh, that, that, when, when you win, you can do monuments to yourself like that. And it goes on, there it is. There's Sennacherib, uh, there's Sargon, there's the Taylor Prism you can see. Thank you for that. And on, on the Taylor Prism you can see how uh, he talks about conquering um, the king of Babylon, Merodach Baladin, that's mentioned in the next chapter. And then how he committed wholesale slaughter and, and attacked and pillaged the lands. And then it goes on to describe the way he attacked the Philistine uh, cities and his conquest of Judah. And how King Hezekiah was recorded as shut up in Jerusalem like a caged bird. Now why have I told you all of this? Well, simply to remind you that what we're talking about here is real history. These are real events. Uh, if you've been studying with us over the last few weeks, as we look through the book of Isaiah, uh, you'll, you'll observe uh, as we come to these chapters that there's a change in the way the text is laid out. It moves from this prophetic prose to this narrative in chapter 36. And what's going on here? Well, I think it's very practical. We've had about 24 chapters in Isaiah where he's basically been reminding the national leadership of Judah to repent and trust. They, they've been reminded that actually God is the God over all the nations. That it's utterly foolish to put their hope in the nations because God is over all. He's sovereign. And they need to repent of their foolish strategies of, of relying on diplomacy and leaning on other nations to protect themselves. They need to repent of that. And instead they need to put their trust in God alone. That's what the last 24 chapters have been about. And if you've been here listening to this, you've been basically hearing me apply the same sort of lesson each week. Who are we truly trusting on in our lives? Are we depending on God's promises in the Bible? Or are we rejecting God's word and just relying, in fact, in, in, in our own little clever plans, our own little strategies, our own little uh, goals? Is that what we are ultimately leaning on? But there comes a point where a practical person asks the question, well, it's been wonderfully uplifting language, Paul, but does it make any difference? Does it really work? Does it work relying upon God in the real world? Are you really serious when you say I should rely on his promises in the Bible? When my business is struggling, when my, when my marriage is crumbling, when I get that uh, diagnosis of cancer, when uh, the church is declining, can I really believe the promises of God? And if that is our question, that's what chapters 36 and 37 are here for to remind us that actually God can be trusted in the real events of our lives for these are very real events that took place in Jerusalem where would King Hezekiah turn so here's a test case of trust um, you, you see that there's a, a real challenge of unbelief here this crisis of trust in the real world. 
if in a sense this would be a, a great movie, a great epic movie, uh, you know, like Lord of the Rings or something like that, you, you'd see opening scenes of, of the Assyrian army just kind of going from place to place and utterly trashing every city that they come across, conquering every land, kings getting their heads chopped off as more and more cities get destroyed. About 46 cities in, uh, are being destroyed. And then, then, then the scene sh- sh- uh, moves to the fact that there's a sub-army uh, of probably at least well over 100,000 men who then march on to Jerusalem. And they're moving closer and closer and, they, and they're beginning to surround the walls of Jerusalem. And there's King Hezekiah. His, the next biggest city has gone down. Lachish is the, has just been conquered. And they've just marched on him. And what is he going to do? And the, uh, the commander of the army has this amazing message for him. Uh, the ESV lets you know that they're called, he's called the Rabshaker. I think it's a shame the NRV's left that out. Isn't that a great name? The rab shaker comes. We had six chickens once. We called the smallest one the rab shaker in honor of this passage. You could call your child rab shaker if you want. The trend for biblical names continues. Well, the rab shaker comes to the king of Assyria. Look at verse 4 of chapter 36. And it's amazing. He really, in the mouth of the enemy, comes the key question. The field commander said to him, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the, the great king, the king of Assyria says, On what are you basing this confidence of yours, Hezekiah? You say you have a strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Do you see what the question is? It's a question of trust, isn't it? Are God's words merely empty words? Oh, it's nice, you can come on a Sunday and, and, and sing uplifting songs and, 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 and listen to this nice poetry of the Bible and feel so faintly uplifted. But then when you walk out the door, you've got to rely on other things because they're just empty words. Is that the case? That's, the, that's what the world is saying to us, isn't it? Keep your privatized faith to yourself. It's all very well and good, but don't talk to us about Jesus. Don't talk to us about the gospel. Don't talk about heaven or hell. Uh, that's, that's, that's nice for you. Empty words, the world says. That's what the Rabshaker says. How does Hezekiah think he's going to oppose the military might of Assyria? What's he trusting in? And then you've got a very fine example of psychological warfare here, haven't you? Uh, you know, for instance, if you go through it, you notice that the Rabshaker, when he refers to Hezekiah, he never mentions him as king. He's just Hezekiah. Well, the king of Assyria is the great king of Assyria. That's clever, isn't it? If you're in a debate, if you meet the prime minister of the UK and you only call him Dave, you're bringing him down a bit, aren't you? All right, Dave. That's what's going on here. You listening to Hezekiah? Listen to the great king of Assyria. And, uh, you know, he starts off with his case in verse 6. Look, you, you can't depend on Egypt. Verse 6. Uh, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And you have to say that's a fair point. 
if we've been listening in, that's exactly what Isaiah's been telling them. Uh, don't depend on Egypt. He's useless. They're useless. But then secondly, uh, you can't depend on God. If you say to me, verse 7, we're depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Isaiah Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Now here he shows he's quite confused. Actually, God was very pleased when Hezekiah removed all those uh, false altars, uh, the idols to the false Canaanite gods. That's what Hezekiah did. Uh, but, and and uh, the rab shaker gets the wrong end of the stick. But his, his basic point is, is, is clear. You can't depend on Egypt and you can't depend on God. And then he points out to them how, uh, how strong they are. He says, look, you're very feeble. Verse 8, come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials? Pretty strong stuff, isn't it? Can't depend on Egypt, can't depend on God, and you are absolutely puny. And then here comes the punch. This guy comes with some theology, verse 10. And after all, it was the Lord who had sent them to destroy them. After all, he says. Furthermore, I've come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord. No, the Lord told us to do it. It is clever propaganda, isn't it? As Barry Webb says in his commentary, this is a classic study of the satanic art of sowing doubt and unbelief. This is the challenge of unbelief in the real world. The enemies of God are very uh, willing to offer their own theological interpretations of events to us. Um, The devil loves to weaken God's people, seek their destruction by clever manipulation, lies and half-truths. And Hezekiah's officials, they they know how damaging to morale all this talk would be. So they beg them, look, speak in Aramaic. And that spurs the rabshaker to uh, the next wave of psychological warfare as he addresses uh, everybody on the walls. Verse 12, was it only to your master that you and my master sent me to say these things and not to the men sitting on the wall who, like me, will have to eat their own filth and drink their own urine? And so he shouts all the louder in Hebrew. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. This is devil-inspired speech, isn't it? Did God really say, says the serpent in the garden, you will not die, he says. Well, he's, this, the, the, the devil said this to the Lord Jesus as he was being tempted in the wilderness, isn't he? Bow down before me and I will give you the nations of the world. This is devil-inspired language. Don't listen. Don't be so foolish to listen to the Lord. Don't be so foolish to listen to the people who tell you to trust in the Lord. How ridiculous. And he's being totally deceitful here. Instead of uh, offering... Instead of the deprivations of being in a long siege, he offers them, what is he, well look at that, verse, uh, verse 16. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyard. See how audacious this is? Why go through a terrible siege when I can offer you salvation? He offers them a promised land. A new Eden. Come on out. It'll be fabulous. 
This is how Satan works, isn't it? He promises us paradise while delivering suffering and tyranny. Um, there's lots of accounts that tell you what the Assyrians actually did to their enemies. And if you lived, you were mutilated in some way. And uh, I wouldn't want to describe to you some of the ways they used to kill people. It's just too X-rated. It's all lies. It's all deceit. And then he tries to choke all hope out of them. Verse 18. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? They defeated all these nations. And you think, your God's any different? This invisible God, Yahweh? You can trust upon him? Well, he's actually made a very big mistake there, hasn't he? He's just declared that the king Sennacherib wants to go toe-to-toe with the living God. Which doesn't go well. But put yourself in the shoes of Hezekiah or Eliakim or one of the soldiers on the wall. This is a very tense moment, isn't it? A great army at the door. They're threatening to starve you to death in a siege. And, uh, they're, and they're saying, well, uh, well, we'll stop that if you just give up your king, give up your land, give up your God. And then you'll have, 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 have a wonderful life. What would you do? What would you do if you were on the wall at that point? Who are you going to trust now? And I think that's, uh, that situation has played itself out in many ways down through history. In the last century, intellectually and politically, it was the rise of Marxism. There was a time where it seemed to be conquering all. All the liberal elites were espousing how great uh, Russia's Soviet system was. People were flocking because it was the nirvana that was being offered to the world. If only we would uh, embrace what Karl Marx had to say. And these communist countries sought to throttle the life out of Christians, persecuting, imprisoning them, all who are seen as a threat to the atheistic states. And now there are huge pressures, aren't there, in these Muslim countries for those who become Christians, like Maryam Ibrahim, this Sudanese woman that we prayed for early in the service who is uh, due to hang for apostasy unless they show clemency. And in our secular society, we have much more subtle ways of going about it. They're less direct threats, but it is still this pull to uh, just fit in. Uh, just fit in with our godless values. Do not speak of your faith. Just keep it with, confined within your walls. And together we'll make a prosperous nation and a future. Just, just admit defeat. Privatize your faith. Stop talking about Jesus. Stop talking about these things. And in our lives, there will be lots of challenging moments, won't there, where we'll face the same challenge of trust. Where are we going to put our trust? When the finances are tight and someone suggests a dubious way of making money. Uh, when we are so lonely and a non-Christian man or woman wants to pursue a romantic relationship. When your boss at work asks you to, uh, to bend the rules. When the guys in the rugby team just want to take you out for some drinking games. Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to trust are you going to listen to God's words are they going to be everything to you or are they going to be basically empty words to you in whom do we trust so what's the response that shows that we are trusting in God well that's what chapter 37 is about and in the book of Isaiah 
the, sort of the first chapters 1 to 39, basically a book ended with two kings, King Ahaz and King Hezekiah. And they both faced the same challenge, the threat of invasion. Ahaz um, chooses to basically ignore God's word. He refuses to trust God. Well, Hezekiah, what we see here is Hezekiah has his uh, most amazing moment in his kingship. This is the high point of Hezekiah. In some ways, this is the high point of the book of Isaiah. Everything in the chapter so far has been leading up to this point. How will he respond? Well, finally, we see him beginning to respond by true trust, by true faith in God. Look at how he responds in verse 1. When King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and went to the temple of the Lord. Now, do you just think about this moment. Here's the king. He's the, uh, the war leader. Uh, he's in charge. Uh, they're surrounded. They look like they're facing defeat in the face. You know, what, what do you think would be the, uh, the, the pressures on him to just make, to look brave, look good, Say, hey, this is not a problem. What does he do? He rips his clothes. He puts on sackcloth. It's a response of total humility. It's a response of helplessness. Quite a thing for a king to do, don't you think? And where we go when we are in trouble says a lot about where our trust is. Where does he go? Verse 1, he went to the temple of the Lord. His response finally is one of repentance. It's a recognition of of his failure as a diplomat. Uh, The foolishness of of perhaps rebelling against Assyria to start off with. The the foolish diplomacy of all the ways he tried to make um, pacts with the other nations. And I think probably too, as he goes to the temple of the Lord, it is a humble recognition that he has offended the holy God. And how different he is to Ahaz, who refuses to uh, ask of a sign of the Lord. He doesn't want to hear from the Lord. Hezekiah says uh, to his officials, you go in sackcloth and ashes, and you go to Isaiah. We need a word from the Lord. And so they go and uh, pass on the message. And the message is one very sober one, verse 3. This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. As when children come to the point of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. It's this agonizing picture of a woman who's trying to give birth, but she's so exhausted she cannot get this baby out. And Hezekiah says, that's where we're at as a nation. Here is a king who's finally come to the end of himself. Who realizes that they they, they have nothing to offer They cannot deliver themselves. And do you know what? We will not really see God at work until we come to that place where we recognize that we have no hope of delivering ourselves. Whether that's individually in our lives, whether as a church. 
if we're also always uh, chasing our little plans and strategies, we've, we've got a little idea we're going to work out, we, we're, we're, gonna, we're, we're okay, it's, it's difficult, but we've got a plan, uh, we, 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 we've got an agenda, we've got a program, uh, we're, we're, we, we're going to try harder, we're going to get there, whether that's as a church or whether in our own lives. Yeah, my life's falling apart, but I'm, I'm going to do some self-help classes, I'm going to you know, start working out, I'm going to take more vitamins, and I'm, I'm going to solve my problems. When we're like that, we'll not know God's help. The place that we have to get to is just this total, humble realization and, and, then, and, and cry out of dependence. We cannot deliver ourselves, oh God. Only you can save. And Hezekiah identified the main problem in this message from the king of Assyria. There in verse 4, he had ridiculed the living God. And so Isaiah sends a message back to Hezekiah from God. Verse 6, Tell your master, this is what the Lord says, Do not be afraid of what you've heard. These words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed Listen, I'm going to put a spirit in him so that when he hears a certain report, he will return to his own. And amazing, what a relief it must have been when they looked out one morning and after a rumor of, a, of an attack from Egypt, the, the army starts marching away from Jerusalem. But as they go, a messenger comes and brings a letter. Uh, the Rab Shaker has spoken to the, uh, the, sort of the prime minister and his head honchos. He's addressed all the people on the walls. And now he sends a personalized letter. As he's leaving, he sends a personalized letter to Hezekiah, reminding him as he leaves, Surely you heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries. And do you notice where he, he, he reminds them what they did to the kings of the countries? Where are these kings? They're gone. Mate, you're next. You're gone. Don't think us leaving means that you're, you're, you're saved. You're not. We're coming back and you're a goner. Now this is Hezekiah's finest hour because he models to us how to respond in the challenges and the crisis moments of our lives. Look again at verse 14. It's a beautiful verse. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and he read it. And then he leaves them. He walks away from them. And he goes up to the temple of the Lord. And he spreads the letter out before the Lord. And he prays to the Lord. Isn't this a beautiful illustration of what we learned in First Peter? First Peter chapter 5. Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you if you have a if we have a challenge that is greater than we can we can possibly get out of what should you do well with all our problems spread out our concerns before the lord pray to him bring them to him and look at this prayer it is just a classic example of how to approach god it begins by an acknowledgement of who he is approaching in verse 16. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Now, Almighty is a, is a translation of a word that means an army host. God of hosts. The God who commands hosts of angels. And if the king of Assyria has armies, he recalls that God has an even greater angelic army. 
And um, we're going to see in a moment, at the end of the day, it only took one angel to do the job. He's addressing the God who has revealed himself to Israel and has entered into a special relationship with them as his people. And he's not just the God of Israel. He's also the God of all the kingdoms of the earth because he's made, he's made the earth and the vast heavens. And so Hezekiah, what does he do here? He starts with worship. He recalls the greatness of God. What a great way to begin as we approach God in prayer. It's a way to frame our problems. Our problems can seem very large and great until we compare them to the greatness and the majesty of God. Begin by worshipping Him and suddenly this problem that overwhelms us is shrink down to its true size. Is this problem greater than this God? Who made the earth and the heavens? Is it greater than Him? No. So he starts with worship. But notice uh, then as he turns to his own concerns, what his true concerns are, verse 17. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. Notice his concern is not primarily about the threat that they were going to get wiped out, that his head was going to come off. His concern is for God's name and reputation that is being mocked in these events. And then he turns to the specific request, verse 20. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Now, he does ask the Lord to save them, but his purpose is that God's name would be hallowed amongst the nations that they would know that you alone, O Lord, are God. His concern is for God's reputation. This is an evangelistic prayer, that the world would come to know the uniqueness of the Lord. Yes, of course, all the other nations fell because their gods were false gods. And so he's saying, O Lord, vindicate your great name. Show them that you are the true and living God. That is a great thing to pray in our struggles and in our troubles, isn't it? Lord, in this cancer, help me to live in such a way that everyone can see that you, O oh Lord, are God. Lord, in my singleness, help me to live in such a way that shows you alone are God. Lord, in our church, uh, in this time where we're like a little remnant left, where millions do not know you, would you act to show that you alone are God? So prayer is the response of trust in the real world. Why are church prayer meetings so poorly attended? Why do you think? Why is it you choose to come on a Sunday morning but not to when we have church of prayer? Why is it that when we pray, sometimes our prayer times are slow? Could it be that we just, we're just not desperate enough We just think, well, actually, do you know what? Things are bad, but we can basically fix them ourselves. We, we can sort this out. We, we've got clever strategies. Paul's got this plan. Everyone's going to read word one-to-one with a member by the end of the year. 
we got a strategy. Maybe it's because we're just not desperate enough. We just don't see that there's a problem. We think we can sort it ourselves. Or maybe we just think it, it doesn't make a difference. So we don't pray. By our non-prayers, our non-attendance at prayer times shows that we're not fully depending upon God. And I don't think we will ever reverse the decline of Christianity in this nation unless we as a people in desperation call upon this God to change things, to change us, to change this nation, to once again uh, revive the cause of his name in Scotland for his glory, for his namesake. It will not happen until we're desperate enough to to lay this out before him and humble ourselves in prayer. And our slow prayer times and the fact that we just end up praying sort of an organ recital of all our diseased friends and fail to pray the larger purpose of that God's name would be hallowed, that his name would be glorified, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that, that we show that we've still got a ways to go to humble ourselves How small will we have to get before we throw ourselves upon God? Well, what's the result of trust in the real world? Well, there's a lovely verse of encouragement there in verse 21. Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, This is the word the Lord has spoken against him. Isn't that beautiful? Because you prayed to me concerning Sennacherib. Because you prayed. The sovereign God chooses to act uh, when we pray. We can wrap our brains in knots trying to work this little thing out. But instead I think we should just get on and make use of this wonderful opportunity to ask him. Because you prayed. The king of Assyria was getting too big for his boots. He was making the mistake of believing his own press. Uh, twice the field commander had said, uh, called him the, the great king, the king of Assyria. But now God's got a few things to say to him. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, uh, says. Verse 22, uh, verse 22. The virgin daughter of Zion despises and mocks you. So that, that, you know, he's been mocking God, but actually what? You know what? Israel's going to end up mocking them. Um, they're going to be laughing as the armies retreat and fail to achieve their objective because they have raised their voice and lifted their eyes against the Holy One of Israel. What a mistake. These aren't like the gods of the other nations, the false gods. This is the, the Holy One of Israel, the unique one. And Sennacherib would soon realize he was dealing with a, a unique situation. And uh, yes, he conquered lots of people, but God's got some news for him. Verse 26, it was God's plan that they should do it. Have you not heard long ago, I ordained it. They've had all the victories because God had planned that they should do it. In days of old I planned it, now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. 
to mess with the Holy One of Israel is to mess with the omnipotent God who can lift up a nation uh, to do a particular job and can cast it aside when it's no more use to him. And he's the omniscient God who knows all things. Verse 28. But I know where you stay. His chilling words for those who remain in unbelief. I know where you stay. I know when you come and go and how you rage against me. But you know what? God is going to break Sennacherib like a wild horse. Uh, He's going to put a hook in his nose. He's going to put a bit in his mouth. And he's going to send him back to Nineveh. Jerusalem will stand. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. It's fascinating to me that the Taylor prism talks about how Hezekiah would be like a caged bird in Jerusalem, but it doesn't mention the fact that he took Jerusalem because he didn't take Jerusalem. Do you think he'd bragged about that if he'd done it? Of course he would have, but he didn't. It goes strangely silent at that point. I think that's beautiful. A witness to the truth and veracity of what we're saying here. And why will this take place? It's not simply because Hezekiah prayed. It's because God is committed to keeping his promises, to maintaining his covenant faithfulness. Look at verse 31. Once more a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Our only hope is in the zeal of the Lord Almighty, who will redeem a people for his own glory out of every tongue, nation, and tribe, including Scotland. And at the end of the day, that's the only reason we can have confidence in our salvation, is because God's at work, because God is faithful to his promises, because God is going to honor his Son in our salvation. And after this message to Hezekiah, the Lord did exactly what he said he would. So let's read these final verses of chapter 37. I want you to notice who's active here and how in three short verses the enemy is dealt with. Verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp, withdrew and returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshipping the temple of his god, Nisroch, I thought that would be a safe place for a man, but it's not, his sons, Adramelech and Shereza, cut him down with a sword. And they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esaradan, his son, succeeded him as king. Now notice with me, what did Hezekiah do to deliver the situation? Did you see him in in any of those verses? Not a thing. Uh, It happened at night. They were sleeping at the time. Because God deserves the glory. This is his salvation. He achieved it. It has always been so. It was so in our salvation when he sent his one and only son to die for us on the cross. It was while we were enemies that God saved us and reconciled us. We added nothing to our salvation. We can add nothing to our salvation. We simply must repent and trust him to trust Christ alone and we will be saved. 
Does it work to rely on the Lord in the real world? Well, Hezekiah, if he could stand up here, would say to you, oh yeah, it does. So will we look to the Lord this week, spraying out problems before him in prayer? Will you come tonight and pray? Will we look to his words and obediently rely upon his promises? Look to obey the Lord Jesus. What will we do this week? Let's pray.